Welcome to the podcast. Um, so, uh, okay, a couple things to start, as we always have to start. Um, if you want to subscribe to our podcast, it's available on the major streaming platforms, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And then for upcoming podcasts, I just wanted to uh, throw it out there for anybody who is uh, watching this for whatever reason, that we're going to be doing one on patient brokering and um and marketing tactics and all the horrible things that have gone on and do go on in the field. We're going to have a, a, a guest, a special guest come in. There's going to be a little panel to kind of have some probably very uncomfortable and brutal conversations about this industry and the stuff that goes on. And I, it was going to be this week, and then we had to change it. So this is going to be much lighter. Um, so we've been asking and saying, like, well, what do you want to hear from podcast? What you know, what do you want us to talk about? There's topics that we feel strongly about and that we're going to talk about, and then there's other topics that uh, other people want to hear. And so some of the people had said that they wanted to hear a little bit more, you know, we're going to move away from all these like hard, to hardline topics that we've been having. And we're going to do something a little bit more. I, don't know, I guess you could say it's fun. I mean, it's serious, I guess, because, um, but people wanted to hear our experiences and they wanted Mark the shark to be on with me. Um, they wanted to hear about, uh, dating and early recovery, first job and recovery, hanging out with friends who still drink and use. So really this is more about like our recovery experience and kind of the stuff that we've gone through since Mark and I are both recovered. And um, so to that end, that's what we'll start. So I'm Richie Hessian and Mark Bonani. And uh, we're both uh, in recovery. In recovery, there it is. Recovery. So um, why don't we start Long with? Term. Why don't we start with that one? I'm gonna look. You you manage the questions and manage the topics. However, you feel like there's a couple. Like when I looked at this stuff and I saw what they wanted to talk about, we didn't pre-prepare any of this. We're just gonna kind of you know this is, this is what yeah this is what they want you to talk about. Okay, I'll talk about this. Um, and first job in recovery and. Uh, dating and early recovery, I have to actually have some interesting experiences that have happened to me in both cases. Well, I'll get into it. But anyway, why don't, why don't you start? Do you remember your uh, first job in recovery, and what would you? How do you speak to it? Um, I think it's actually worth mentioning that not only first job in recovery, I guess, because this speaks to different different people, right? Sometimes people come into treatment first time in recovery, they have an established life. I think it's worth talking about that. The sure. difference between habilitation and rehabilitation. Some yeah. people come into recovery, they already have a job. So their first job in recovery is going to be going back to the career they're already sure. on, their track. And we see those people. Then you got the younger population that's coming in here, the young opiate addicts are using hard drugs that are bringing them to their knees a lot quicker. And they come into a place like here or... or, or another, <laughs> Some of them it's their recovery. first job. Ever. Period. Right. Yeah. True. It's a reality. You know, and even talking to some new new people uh, recently, and they're like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, like my first job in recovery was working in a deli. That's what I had been doing. I was 21 years old. I had been working in pizza places and delis and that kind of stuff. And I was in a halfway house. And I took the first job that was available because I needed to Absolutely. pay my way. Yeah. And that was essentially it. And um, I guess really, let's like, Really, it's concentrate on getting sober. Concentrate on what needs to be done to maintain permanent sobriety. And, and what I tell people a lot that I work with, whether it's sponsorship or people people in treatment or, or just early recovery, anybody is, look, it doesn't matter. Because the reality is, if you get sober, my experience has been this. And it actually goes to the dating part, too. People, um, they want to go back to the gym. They want to get their money right, and they got to get a girlfriend for the guys or the guy or, mm -hmm. the, or the girls want to get a girlfriend. Like this is the, this is the, this has become the most important thing. It's like, dude, you were just living on the streets. You didn't care about any of that stuff when you were using. You got a week sober, and now you want to have a career, right? And you want to. And this is all. This, my experience has been that if I get sober, something happens. Something happens in the in in the world. When, and when I say getting so, like, I mean for really sober. I mean. Doing 12 steps. Yeah, you're not talking about just abstinent from alcohol or drugs. You're right. talking about I'm talking about state of mind, a, I'm talking lifestyle. About a, yeah. Having a spiritual experience that right, right, does right. something that the universe likes. Sure. And people want to give you jobs. People want to give you raises. People want to give. People want to date you. Something <laughs> yeah. happens that I, I don't. They, they can't put their finger on it, but it's been my experience that they can tell something's going on with you. Like, see, so here's the thing, right? So. 
And we'll get into that. And 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 but you brought up a good point. And one of the interesting things, and this is human nature. This is basic. Like base, yeah, yeah. But this is basic human nature. Like it's totally understandable. Early recovery, when people first get sober, a lot of us, and then you know, again, it's different for everybody. Like Mark said, depending on your age and where you were and what you've done before. But I can speak for myself. When I actually got sober, I'm twenty almost twenty-six years old. All my friends had gone. I dropped out of college. I had no, you know, real. I mean, I'll go into what my first job was, which was not an unreasonable job. Had it actually been where I really was working it and actually professional in any way with the job that I had, which we'll go into. But the point is that I got sober at 26 and I looked around and everyone had graduated college. They're buying houses. They're getting married or already married. Some of them having their first kids. And I'm living in my dad. My dad finally let me move back into with him because I had been booted from my family's houses. But now I'm allowed to live back in with him in a bedroom under very strict rules. Every once in a while, he'll let me borrow his station wagon because I got no car. Every once in a while, I'm 26 years old. He'd peel out $20 and say, like, here, here's $20 uh, in case you're going to go to the diner. You know, I know you go to the diner after your meeting sometimes. Here, here's something. So you can get something like, thanks, daddy. You know, 26 years old, thanks, dad. But that's what it is. That's where I was at. I guess my point is that when you stop for the first time in a long time, and I'm not in the fog of alcohol and drugs, and not, and that's when you're getting high, you don't care about it. You don't even think about yeah. any of that stuff. Reality now, sets in. Now I'm sober and I see what everyone else has done and is doing, and I see where I'm at. And it becomes some people are like, oh, and this sucks. And they listen to their sponsor and like, I know I got to work my way out of this hole and it'll take some time. Other people are like, no way. I need to get there and I need to get there now. And I got to work and I got to make money and I got to. And then instead of throwing themselves into where recovery is the primary focus, work becomes the primary focus because they got to catch up because they got to get money in the bank because they got to pay those bills. This stuff's not going to fix itself. All of a sudden, the guy who didn't give a shit about any of this two months ago, all of a sudden they're telling you like, well, this isn't going to fix itself and I need to dig myself out of the hole. You know, relax. It's all going to be there. And this is all like fellowship stuff. Whatever the fellowship goes, they say, you, know, you faith, take your no take your life problems and, and put them in this basket. And then you take the, uh, and then, you know, you, you work on this problem. And once you work on your alcoholism and addiction, everything else is going to go away. And they make those kinds of analogies. And they're right, you know, but you can't see that in early recovery and you don't want to hear it in early recovery. And and uh, the first job in recovery can sometimes be tough depending on what it is you look to do. For example, and I'd ask you to speak to it. You know, we see all sorts of stuff, and there's temptations in early recovery when, okay, so you're sober and you uh, you're working. You're if you're we're we're going into certain assumptions. For us, if you're going to get sober, it means you're no longer drinking or using or taking alcohol or drugs in any form at all, including steroids, because steroids is not is a mind and mood altering substance. So anybody who wants to get to the gym in early recovery, do so naturally, because in my way of thinking, you know, steroids is not sober. But been there, done it, didn't work. There you go. So um so but you're we're assuming you're sober and we're assuming that means that you're doing 12 step work and that you're having an experience and that you're living a recovery lifestyle the way we would look at a recovery lifestyle. Right. And that's, and now you're going to go out and you have to get a job. And sometimes people are tempted and they'll be offered a job through somebody in the fellowship will say like, Oh, I can get you a job on the sales desk and you're selling some fagazi bullshit where it's fast, easy money. And it's very tempting because you haven't worked and like these guys are all doing it and blah, blah, blah. And I, you can speak to it too. I mean, we've seen people who've gotten involved in dishonest work in early recovery and you can't live dishonest and stay clean. You can't stay sober living a dishonest lifestyle. So your first job in recovery is important. And I've had this conversation with you. I've had this conversation with other people in early days. You are better off working in a deli, earning honest money honest and work, scrimping by a little days bit. Pay. That's it. And it is better for you spiritually. It's better for the long run. Because the truth is, people like us, in early recovery, when people get sober, people like us that are out there, and I mean like the sick and suffering, when we get sober... I'll take one of you over three normal people any day of the week. If you've had that experience and you live in a recovery lifestyle and you use your powers of evil for good, we are unbelievably powerful skilled. and skilled in what we can yeah. do. You can operate the way we operate out there. Now you take that skill set and you superimpose it over real life and, and jobs and work. We are Un we are Jedi, and that's the real. I've seen it's happened to me. It's happened, it's happened to, to me. you. I've seen so many people that I've worked with. 
It's just that that can't be your primary when your primary desire is to get money and make successful. It's harder to get money and be successful for me in early recovery. Or well, you like, lose everything else, and it in, all goes away. Anyway. And you eventually exactly. pick up. Exactly. Right? Like I, it's uh, it's it's a, it's a weird how it works. It's yeah. weird how it works. Whatever I put in front of it, I mean, it's cliche stuff, but it's cliche for a reason. Whatever yeah. I put in front of my recovery ends up being the first thing that I lose. Like jobs never kept me. Never kept me sober. Yeah. Girls never kept me sober. You know, probation. None, none of the stuff kept me sober. It was just get sober and all the rest came. And then there's something about it, too, because I'm thinking about early recovery. My last time getting sober, I'd had a career, but I blew that through felony arrests. You can't be in the finance business anymore. So I switched gears into, like, advertising. And I was paying the bills, but it wasn't, like, a career move. But the funny thing is, when I look back, and if you talk to a lot of people in recovery about this stuff— Sometimes, and it's really hard to imagine in early, early recovery when you have nothing and you're just scraping by. But Biggie says his best, man. More money, more problems anyway. The better I did, the more I'm, I'm sick, just, man. Did you just quote Biggie? Biggie Smalls. Biggie Smalls? Yeah, of course. Notorious. He nailed yeah, it. it. I mean, it's Biggie. true. Like, some of the happiest times in recovery or the early recovery when all I'm worried about is getting to a meeting and talking to my sponsor. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And then it becomes like how— when, Keep the it more, simple, stupid. Keep it simple. The more I get, <laughs> the more I want to keep it, the more fear mm-hmm. it brings up. It's crazy how—and I distinctly, as I was going through it this time, getting sober, and as success started to come my way again, I was like— Am I going to have a good month next month? Yeah. Am I going to still have this money? Am I going to lose what I have? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just, a, it's a It, it speaks to thing. good sponsors. Like getting a good sponsor in one of the fellowships that you go to is very important. Like that person and the way they view that stuff and the way they look at it. Because my sponsor told me a thousand times every time I'd bring up a concern about like, what, well, but I got to get, you know, I'm, I'm in debt. And he's like, you've been in debt forever and you've never had any real, you, you know, you've never really been concerned about that stuff so far. It's irrelevant. And I would bring it up and he would say irrelevant. He would just keep saying it's irrelevant none of that stuff is relevant that's all just in your mind you need to focus on this step work primary do the next thing follow all these directions and have an experience and all that stuff is going to happen on their own so i'll tell you my first so in recovery and i'm one of the ones that already had a i mean to say it's a career is ridiculous but anyway i was I'm the, probably one of the very few people who went to Wall Street and got sober. Most people go to Wall Street and then they get all fucked up on drugs. Yeah. I went there, <laughs> wasted a total full-blown cocaine addict when I got there. So for me, these guys that I, I met when I went into the desk and I went to work, they were in a fellowship and they were you know, uh, in recovery or at least they went to like fellowship meetings and stuff. And they saw that I was out of my mind and they pulled me to my first meeting ever. So for me, it was kind of opposite situation. But anyway— my early, I'm not going to get into all my early story of what happened, but suffice it to say, now I come in, I get, I go to detox, I get, you know, I get sober and now I'm in the process of getting sober with my sponsor. And now I have a job as a stockbroker, right? I'm a licensed stockbroker. Now I have, thank God, I don't know what it is, man. People have asked me this before. It's weird. I was in with some not good characters when I first was learning to be a broker and I was like, you know, just on the learning phase. I wasn't licensed. I was just kind of qualifying leads and I was doing like, and I was in with guys that, and I don't know, I was a kid, you know what I mean? I was in with people who were not, you know, not doing the right thing or whatever. <laughs> but once I became aware of it and I went and studied my test and the more you learned, you kind of like, this isn't right, which is weird for me because I'm not, I wasn't good in that way, but I think I just always had an aversion to jail. So I, I think I saw what was going on once I finally realized it. And yeah. I was in a fog of getting high, too. Wasn't you were this great guy. Uh, yeah, not at no. all. Not at all. But once I realized it, I actually went the other way. And I went to some not, you know, the Merrill Lynch's of the world and those places. They would never hire somebody like me. I was a college dropout. I had a rest record. I had no credit. So I couldn't get a job there anyway. But, you know, f- I went to, like, these boutique little firms that were actually legit firms. But they were, you know, I mean, it's it's— they're just small and they're kind of out of the way, kind of play little places, these little mediocre places. But anyway, I, listen, I went and I was working for those guys and I was, you know, not doing anything wrong, but I was so ineffective because I rarely showed up and I was always wasted. And we had a crew of guys that were working at this one particular place. And the guys I were in with were like, you know, cocaine dealers on Staten Island. And like, they were brutal guys and they were kind of had friends, friends and this and that. And so they never messed around. They didn't bother with us at the firm that I was at. And they kind of let us kind of do our thing. And so I missed work all the time, but they would never like fire me or whatever. But now I get sober 
I have to go and I start, I'm, when I say sober, I mean, I start making amends. And I have one of the first amends I had to make was to a bunch of people in my office because I was, I was a brutal asshole. Like I was angry, violent. I was never cared about anybody, selfish. I never came. When I did come, I was wasted. I would cause all sorts of problems. Absolutely brutal. And so I went and made amends and my manager was like relieved that I made amends because I think he realized that for the first time he could like fire me and I would like accept it and be okay with it and stop showing up. You know what I mean? But he didn't. He was actually a very cool, man. Phil, if any Phil Aiello ever watches this, the guy's name was Phil Aiello. What an amazing guy, man. Holy cow. I still think about him all the time yeah, and what a good human being he was. And he did. He <laughs> gave me a second chance and that was really, really cool. I'll never forget him for that. And so anyway, so Phil, you know, let me stay. And now here I am first job in recovery in a way, because this is the first time I've ever been in recovery where I'm actually working, where I'm showing up to work every day. And I had to go to my sponsor and I told my sponsor, I said, I don't think I could do this anymore. And my sponsor was like, why? And I said, because it's dishonest. And my sponsor, but I thought you said the place you work. And I said, no, it's not the place I work. It's dishonest for me. I said, what I'm good at are the phones. I can talk people into stuff. I said, but I'm asking people to give me their money and invest with me. And to be honest with you, I don't know anything about Wall Street. People would ask me a question like, oh, well, what's the company's EBITDA? Now, I've learned a lot since then. Now I've actually become educated and I do understand all that stuff, but I didn't that back then. People would ask me what the EBITDA is, and I don't know that it's earnings before interest and depreciation. I don't know any of that. And so I'm like... Well, it doesn't matter what it is. You're looking at it the wrong way. And I would just take control of the conversation <laughs> and talk my way around it and get them to buy the stock without that crucial information. Just because I had the ability to do that doesn't mean that it's okay. So I'm, should, yeah. I'm telling people that I'm your stockbroker and I'm going to watch out for your money, but I don't know the first thing about it. So I, and my sponsor was like, well, that's very mature. He's like, you know, it's great that you see the truth in it. But once you realize, you know, that you can't do that anymore, you know, what are you going to do? You know, because now I've really got to get my first job in recovery. You know what I mean? Because once you realize that it's dishonest and once you realize that you really shouldn't be doing it anymore, you can't. Yeah. Right, because this program demands rigorous honesty like, and an awakening, do. and doing yeah. things a little bit different, yeah. outside of the comfort zone. Yeah. So. Yeah. Where did you end up after that? I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you. You don't remember this part? It was interesting. Um, it's wild to put this out there, but I will because you know whatever, dude. I'm I'm out there anyway, and I don't. You know, it's not something that I usually share. And the fact that it's going to go out like this is going to be kind of weird, but whatever. So I'll tell you, this was my first job, real job in in recovery. Now, I told you that I'm not. I'm a college dropout. I've got an arrest record. i got no credit. So it's interesting. I started off this little diatribe of mine by saying that place like Merrill Lynch would never hire me because they would never hire somebody like me. But And I'm going to leave names out of it, I guess. I guess I probably should. I should have called and asked him permission. He probably would say, yeah, it's fine. He doesn't care, but I'm not going to do it anyway. You know who I'm talking about. So anyway, I was sponsoring somebody at the time, and he had an unbelievable step experience. This guy was, he was a Wall Street guy. And I didn't even know that at the time. It's weird. Early days when I was sponsoring, I was sponsoring like eight people. I never, it's weird. You don't sit down and say like, well, what do you do for a living? I never asked anybody that. I don't know why. It just never came up. I'd ask them about their family, their friends, like their life. But for some reason, current job, I just think about thinking back on it. Back then, for whatever reason, I never really asked that question. I didn't even know what he did for a living, this guy. But as I, I'm sponsoring him, he has a rock star experience. Like, he was about to lose his job. His wife was leaving him. He was ill health. Like, everything was bad in his life. And he was on that precipice of losing everything. And so he went through and he started doing 12 step work. And he had this coolest experience watching this guy. He, like, whoa, it was great to watch. I love watching people get, like, recovered and stuff. And so he got everything back. The wife stayed. His his health became great. His job, he got promotions because people like us, when we start doing it's the deal, but it's it crazy how time. what opens up for us. Now, at this time, keep in mind, like, I'm getting ready to leave my job no matter what. And I was at the point where, and I'll be honest, I'll tell you right now, my sponsor was like, well, maybe you should just go get a job, you know, driving a cab or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I think that's probably what I'm going to do. It's not an ego thing. Like, my sponsor's like, that's actually good for you. Deflation of ego. Forget about, like, oh, I'm a stockbroker. Yeah, you're not really. And and you need to go out and do honest work. And I'm like, you know what? I am. And I was in a sober mind frame. Like, I am going to do that. 
But all of a sudden, this sponsee calls me up one day. And we'd become very, very friendly over the year and a half or whatever that we were working together in my early recovery. And, you know, he calls me up one day and he's like, hey, listen, man, I wanted to throw something out there to you. He said, there's a position opening up on the FX desk at this at, at, at this bank at Merrill. Foreign exchange. And, yeah, foreign exchange know. desk at Merrill. And he said, and I think you would be amazing at it. He's like, you have got, he's like, I've got all these Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Cornell. He's like, we got all the Ivy League school kids and they're amazing, talented people. He's like, but I don't know, man. He's like, I'm, I'm the manager. I'm a hiring manager, and I've got an eye for, for talent. And he said, I think you, alongside them, he said, I think you would outdo all of them. I don't know why, but I just think that you would just catch on to this thing, and you'd be amazing. And I was like— no, that's a, it was a very nice thing for him to say. And I'm like, meanwhile, I'm like, no way, right? You're talking about people like Harvard graduates. Like, I'm going to go on a desk with those people. Like, this guy's nuts. He's a Staten mental Island case. Community College. Yeah, exactly. CSI, good old college, Staten Island. So I said, um, I said, well, that's very nice. That's very thoughtful. And I appreciate it. And I said, but to be honest with you, I said, it wasn't even a matter of that. It was a matter of a sponsor-sponsor relationship. And so I said, uh, I said, there's no way, dude. I said, i really thoughtful. I said, but you're my sponsee. And I said, and I can't. I wouldn't use you for that in that way. Like it just, it's a conflict of interest almost. And I said, so while I appreciate it, I said, I wouldn't feel right. Like it just wouldn't seem, doesn't seem like something I should really do, but, but thank you for the offer. So he's like, all right. He said, well, I mean, I'd really like to, to, to help. And, and he said, but you know, he said, I, th I know you were looking for something. And he's like, and I think it would be a great match. I don't understand why you'd be, he's like, I'm not going to be your direct boss. He's like, I'm, I'm the, your bo I would be your boss's 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 boss. He's like, I'm, he's charged globally of he's like, just global an opportunity yeah, he's just door. opening a door for me that wouldn't be open otherwise. And so I politely declined it. And then that night I went to my home group and uh, my sponsor's there and his sponsor and his sponsor and like all the whole home group people into world talking about life and before the meeting. And so I brought it up as like a point of like, well, look at the good decision I, I made thing, today. Yeah. And I said, that, you Somebody know, this, this dude offered me a thing. And I said, so, of course, I said no. And I remember Tattoo Larry, Tattoo Larry said, uh, he said, you turn him down. And I said, yeah. And he said, are you a fucking idiot? Yeah. <laughs> I said, excuse me? And I was like, didn't, I said, it would be a conflict of interest. He said, conflict of interest? He said, are you kidding me? He said, so let me get this straight. You've worked a lot with this guy, have developed a friendship. You've given time, effort, energy, and love. You guys have walked this path together hand in hand. We help each other. That's part of what the fellowship does. Now, he wants to open a door for you that you could never open yourself because it would make him feel good to do a good turn for you. And you told him to go fuck himself. And I said, no. I said, I wasn't. I figured it was a conflict of interest. I didn't want to. And he was like, Richie, you're looking at it the wrong way, man. He's like, that's what we do for each other. And if he can do that for you, he said, I think you're crazy. You should really rethink that. And I think you should talk to your, you know, your girl about that. And you guys should think about what makes sense for your future. And you should consider going back and, and talking to him. So I was like, all right. So I thought about it and I'm like, you know, these guys are pretty, you know, and I was like, well, maybe I made a mistake, you know, yeah, you so, think you're being no, yeah, exactly. Again, early recovery. Exactly. Still yeah. I'm not, I'm not there. So I called them back and I said, Hey, do you think, uh, you know, do you think that that would still be open or whatever? Cause I think I might be interested. And he was like, absolutely. So now I got to go. And I, he's like, look, you're, he's like, I make the final decision, but you still got to technically come and interview with the head desk, the head of the desk and blah, blah, blah. So he's like, I'll set it up and you'll come in. And I go into fucking Merrill Lynch, dude. A year before this, I was like stealing money from the, my parents and rolling pennies that I found in my closet and you're floor. Going to a top you know what five, I mean? And now, yeah, five and firm. now I'm at a top five firm in Wall Street, going in for like a, jo a job. Now I don't even know the specs of the job. I just told him sure. And now I go in and I sit down with this guy, and the, the guy was like, "Well, listen, to be honest with you, he's like so and so really wants you to have the the gig. So you know, he said this is more formality, but tell me a little bit about yourself." And I'm honest, I just was like, and this guy was <laughs> this guy was pretty cool because he was very friendly with it because he's it's his boss's boss's boss so he's you know very open to whatever but he was cool as hell and he was like yeah, i don't think you'll have a problem so and he was like i'd love to have you he said you seem like you have a great personality you seem fast on your feet you've certainly got the gift of gab let's see you know let's see if you do it he's you know our friend said you may you've not really been dude my worst subject in school was always math economics and now i'm gonna take a job in a foreign exchange it's a joke when you think about it but i don't know man i was always good at like probabilities and this and that and I couldn't tell you, like, when they hired me, I'll never forget this. So funny. Like, my first real job in recovery, when I was a broker, my best year 
I maybe made like $45,000, my best year. Because keep in mind, that was working like maybe, I don't know, 40 days a year. Like, yeah, I, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, I only showed so up every so much. Exactly, exactly. And so now um, I go in and I interview, and, and after we're done, they're like, okay, so we want to offer you the job. The starting salary is $55,000. And I was like, Fifty-five. That like starting base salary, and they were like, "Plus, you'll get an incentive bonus. It's not going to be a lot the first year, just so you know. I mean, it's you're already halfway through the year anyway, and so you're probably not going to get more than twenty thousand dollars." And I'm like, "Holy <laughs> shit! Like yes. seventy-five grand!" I'm like, "Oh my god!" Plus medical insurance and this and that. And I'm like, "Now I'm sitting there listening. I'm like, oh, well, that's understandable." You know. Meanwhile, I'm thinking like, I remember more calling, than I ever got. I remember calling my ex when it, after the meeting and after I signed the contract, I called her and I'm like. We're rich. We're rich. You know what I mean? Like, we're going to guaranteed we're going to get that kind of money. So I took the gig and dude, holy cow. And I'll speak to this part of it just for all the people that are out there. I wasn't worried about making money. I wasn't worried about getting a job. I was worried about helping people, staying sober, doing the next right thing. I was literally just focused on 12-step recovery. I didn't go looking for that job. I just, it came looking for me. But it happens time and time. Time and time again. Time again. Time and time again. Every person that does it. And it's the hardest thing to understand or have any faith and belief in, in the beginning, that if you just concentrate on getting sober, really, truly sober, all the opportunities will come. Yeah. They always come. They always come. I've seen it happen to every person that's ever done it. Now we get always, you know, I'm going to tell another story too, just because I'm moved to do it. And, you know, we might even edit this out later on. I don't know. I got to think about it, but um, it is an interesting thing because once you take that initial job and I, and, and it, 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 it does speak to what I'm talking about for the, we use our powers of evil for good. Now here I am, by the way, when they did hire me, I remember that I got called into the hiring, the lady who the administrator who'd like processes all new hires for Merrill. And I got called into her office and she's like, we have a couple of problems that we need to clear up. I'm like one. And I said, sure. What? She goes, do you have an arrest record? And I was like, yeah, I told, and I, did t- I told him I had an arrest record. She goes, oh, he didn't tell me. And so my buddy was the guy who my sponsor was like, yeah, it's fine. He's like, it's, it was, it was just, it was only a marijuana charge. It's not like, you know what I mean? He's like, but it's fine. Just, just, you know, write it down. I'll sign it off as an exception or whatever. And she was like, oh, okay. She goes, but there's a couple other issues. She goes, you don't have a college uh, degree. And I said, no, I, I dropped out of school. And so she was like, oh, she, and he knew that. And he was like, yeah, it's fine. And he signed off on that too. She goes, meanwhile, it's probably policy in a place like Maryland. Well, yeah, but I, they do, their hiring managers are able to make certain exceptions, sure. but I probably was the only person working on that desk without a college degree. I'm um, probably one of the few that worked without a master's degree, but whatever. And then she said, and then the last thing was, she goes, I tried to get you the company American Express corporate card. And she said, and you were declined. <laughs> you don't have any credit. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's a problem too. And so he co-signed my coke my cards so I could actually get an expense card so I could go out with clients and and do the thing, which is kind of funny, right? So so I I I, I take the job and I didn't know if I was even going to understand the job. I've you know euro, yen, Swiss, sterling, all these different names for British pound, and there's eight ways to say one thing and decimals and how do you do current exchange? And you're doing this one trades against this one, and which is the base currency? And I don't know any of this stuff. And I'm like, oh my god! And I'm like literally teaching myself, asking a thousand questions, learning. I took to it like that. In six months, I was absolutely rock. Like, they wouldn't even let me pick the phone up at first because I'm a trainee. By the end, man, I was two phones doing a Reuters machine, out, open outcry. It's like an open outcry where you're screaming, 50 mine, 10 yards, screaming, buying, selling. It was madness. And I mean, it suited me well. And I went in and I went into this thing full bore to the point where, and this is what I'm talking about, to the point where. One of the guys that I worked with that was on the desk, that was a senior salesman across the room. I never even talked to the guy. It was a huge tra- uh, trading floor. I never even talked to him. I was a very junior guy, brand new. He was very senior. He covered the best accounts that Merrill had. And he resigned and he left. And it was a big thing. They were like, oh, so-and-so left and went to another, uh, went to Credit Suisse. And oh my God. So, you know, they're trying to, you know, his accounts were huge. And so I'm like, oh yeah, that sucks. Like, I don't even know the guy. So for, it didn't change anything for me. I was working on the government desk. So I was like, ah, whatever. So now the guy leaves and like 10 days later, I get a Bloomberg message with his name on it. And it's, uh, it says, call me on the outside with his cell phone number. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Like, I wonder what he wants. Like, I don't even know him, but I knew his name because he was a big sales guy. So I'm like, oh, and so I call him up and I'm like, hey, dude, uh, I got a Bloomberg message that you wanted me to call you. 
And he goes, um, he goes, dude, listen, he said, I've been watching you from across the room for six months. I saw when you first came in, he's like, you're a street guy. He's like, I'm born in Brooklyn. He's like, you know, he's, you know, he was college grad and all that kind of stuff. But he was like, you know, I'm a Brooklyn kid. You're a Staten Island kid. He's like, I heard you. You're loud. You're fast. You're efficient. He's like, you got a good personality. My clients would love you. I don't like people backing up my accounts when I'm not there people, but I have to have somebody to pick up the phones. He's like, and I'm at a point now where I'm so busy. I need somebody. He's like, I want you to resign from Merrill and I want you to come over and work with me at that Credit Suisse. And I was like, really? Like, but now I'd lose my rabbi. But as it turned out, the guy who got me hired to Merrill literally the week before had had told me that he's going to be in the next coming months leaving there and going somewhere else. So I was going to be left on my own anyway. And I remember being scared and telling him, what am I going to do? He's like, you don't have to do anything. You're a rock star. They love you now. You're already in doors open. Now it's always been, it's up to you. So I said, do I take this job? And so I go to my guy and I'm like, dude, this kid just called me. You know, he goes, that's what I'm talking about. He goes, I told you they're going to love you. He's like, you should take it. You should go and talk to him and interview. And I'm like, yeah, but I mean, I'm here. This at, I I'm in here at Merrill. And I'm like, I, I, I don't think I should leave. Like, they're really being good to me. And he's like, dude, that guy can take you to a whole nother spot. You should go interview. So I'm like, I said, I will. But I said, I'm going to be honest with them. I'm not, I'm not, you know, my recovery is my recovery. They're not going to be as understanding of an arrest record, no college degree. I'm, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to bullshit. I'm not going to bullshit. Never been a barrier for me. Well, once the doors, I didn't realize that once somebody else had already hired you and you're coming from Merrill, that's what they care about. And all the other stuff is just at that point becomes kind of less concerning, but I don't know this. And so he's like, dude, when you go on the interview, ask him for a ridiculous amount of money. I mean, I'm making 75 grand a year at this point and thrilled with it. You know what I mean? And so he's like, you should ask him for something crazy. Start out really high. You know what I mean? Because you never know, man. They, the banks, and they really don't. Wall Street, they look at things different, those people, hey, man. They don't real. look at money like it. For me, the way they look at money is like monopoly. It's crazy, at least back then, back in the day. So I'm like, all right. So I go on the interview. And he's like, he's like, you have to still interview. He goes, you know, the guy Steve was hiring me. He goes, you have to interview. He said, and it's going to be a lengthy interview. They're probably going to make you meet everyone on the desk. He said, I'm going to be the one saying I want you as my backup. Um, he was a big hire for them, so there's no way they're going to turn down. But I do still have to go through protocols and process. And I said, no problem. So you have to meet like 20 different people on several interviews. I'm like, okay. So I'm nervous, dude. Like I'm not, I didn't even, at that point, I just bought my first two suits to go to work at Merrill wearing a suit every other day. You know what I mean? To work at Merrill. Been there, done that too. And so now and I got to go. Five years at that point, six years? Maybe? Uh, no. I mean, at that point I'm sober for Four. not even three years. It was that. It was that. Yeah, okay. it was ninety nine. Was I was so sober two less than three years? I was sober still at that early point. Recovery. Yeah, very early recovery. So I said, uh, so. So I said, okay, I'll go on the interview. And so they call me morning of interview and I'm so scared. And I see the phone. I'm like, oh, what's going on? And they're like, listen, man, we had to change in interview plans. The, the guy who you were going to meet last as the final, the final hurdle actually happens to be in town. And he's going to be in New York. And he said that since he's going to be here anyway, they might have even flown me out to London to meet this guy. Like, this is such a different world I'm in now all of a sudden. And I'm like, well, he's going to be there and he wants to meet with you while he's here in New York. So you're going to meet with him instead of all the other people. And I was like, okay. And now I'm thinking about what my boy said about, you know, ask him for a lot of money and then put a big number out there and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, I don't know. How do you like, you know, I don't know. And so then finally I had gone and consulted him again. He goes, dude, it doesn't matter. You're going on the first interview. You don't have to worry about what your salary is going to be, what you, any of the details. They're never going to go into that with you on your first ever interview. So don't worry about that right now. Just worry about being yourself and just tell them the truth and be honest and be sober and just go talk to the guy. He's like, just be you. I'm, they're going to love you. And I'm like, all right, now I'm scared. I walk into Credit Suisse and it is an opulent, rich European institution. Like, dude, like the, everything was marble and fucking like, like gold and sconces. And like you walk into the room and everything is plush velvet. I've never been in a place. I was like a castle for kings and queens. <sighs> I, I was like so unnerved. And I'm sitting in this room and the, at the head of this huge conference table that probably cost $500,000. Crazy. And I'm sitting there like this and I'm so scared. My heart's beating. My hands are shaking. And I, cause this is like, you're out of your league. I'm way out out of my depth, way out of my depth. I'm, I'm newly sober. I'm just way out of my depth. And now I know this guy's coming in and I hear the door open and I look over 
and I see the guy come through and my whole deportment changed because the guy had on the craziest paisley fucking pants, an orange shirt, a green hat that it looked like he bought with a bowl of soup. Dude, I couldn't believe he looked like a cartoon character. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I couldn't believe I almost started laughing because he looked so odd. He was an English guy. He's a Brit. And he has this, like, curly hair. And I'm like, oh, my God. He's like, I almost started laughing. Right away, I lost all my fear. And he walks over and he said, yeah, Richard, I'm, you know, John Smith. But his name's not. I don't want to use his name because I'm John Smith. And I'm like, hey, John, how are you, man? It's good to meet you. And he's like, it's good to meet you. Sit down. Sit down. And he's like this flamboyant English guy. Sit down, please, please. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, so tell me about yourself. I want to know everything. And I'm like, all right. He goes, we've got about 20 minutes. He's like, tell me about yourself. Why do you want to come here? Why should we hire you? Tell me who's Richard Hessian. And I'm like, okay. And I told him my story. Like I got into it about my childhood, about dropping out of school. I didn't go heavy into the drug stuff because there was no need to really go there. But I did tell him that I had some issues which derailed me from college. I, I, I you know, I didn't get in depth about the crazy stuff I'd done. But I, I told him about me. I don't know why. It just, I just was honest with the guy, and I told him that, you know, I just, I gave him the down low, and I told him about my family, and I told him about like ever just stuff growing up. Like I don't know, it just all came out. Like we, he asked a question, and then before. Well, you know what? We're talking. And I mean, I went on, dude, and he went on and then he was talking and he was asking me stuff and I was asking him stuff. And before you know it, we're in a conversation. He looks down at his watch and he goes, oh, my God, it was an hour and 10 minutes went by for a 20 minute meeting. And he's like, I can't believe that it went this long. He's like, Richard, you are so interesting. He's like, I absolutely love you. He said, we need to have you. We need to hire you. He said, and I'll tell you right now, he's like, we're going to forgive the formalities. He's like, no, 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 no other interviews. He goes, I'm not going to put you through 30 people. He's like, they'll all do. I'm, you're hired. I want to hire you. Absolutely. What's it going to take for you to leave Merrill Lynch and come to Credit Suisse First Boston right now? Can you believe that? I'm like, he didn't just ask me that question. You know what I mean? Like, now I know I asked for more than 55,000 because that's what my base is now. Philo said throw a, and I don't, dude, I have no idea what to say. What the hell do you say? So I'm like, what, what do I do? What do I do? And I'm like, and I don't know what made me even dare to say something like this. I have no idea. I couldn't tell you where I'd even heard a number like this in my life. And I said, $250,000. And he said, done. And I reached out and shook his hand and my hand is shaking. And he's like, congratulations. We're so excited to have your work. He's like, <laughs> my girl is going to send you a FedEx package and you're going to get it in the mail. and It'll be your employment agreement and everything is going to be great. And he's like, you can wait until you get that and sign it. And then you go resign and we'll figure everything out. And, and he was like, I'm so glad I met you. You're such a wonderful person. I look forward to you coming. And he leaves the room it's, and it's, I'm yeah. standing there, dude. And I'm like, Holy shit! And maybe everyone, Dude, not wow, have that. Experience. No, of course. I mean, that is rare to the extreme. <laughs> yeah. But, but wow! Like, I still, I look back on that even now, and I'm like, I don't know if wow. everybody appreciates, but if you're watching this thing, I mean, there's Oof. a different gift that this guy has. <laughs> that some people may not have. But there's always but scales it was, of it. And yeah, it scales of it. Absolutely, scales look, I mean, of it, no doubt. You, you essentially had hit the lottery at that point. Dude, the lottery. You don't always hit the lottery. I mean, I have and let me tell you something else, too. I mean, what I say about people like us having the ability to be rock star, because I rocked that job. And I mean, yeah, I, I remember rocked when that I met job. You and you were. Just I went into that place. To... They made. They, as it turned out, and I didn't know this at the time, they made a good hire because I took to that business. I built a huge but, little business within their business and turned it into something absolutely rock. Bring it back to recovery. How, how did it all happen? By taking a different attitude towards everything that you everything. do in your life. Everything. Steps first. Sponsorship and it's not, first, it's not helping just, others, do the next right thing. I literally followed a guideline of recovery, and my sponsor and my people told me, you do this, all that other stuff is going to fall in place the way it's supposed to, because sometimes money doesn't come, and I have a sponsor, he's like, but I don't understand, you had that experience, and I don't have any money. Maybe you're not supposed to, because yeah. some people, when they get the girl back too soon, Maybe it causes relapse. Right. Exactly. Sometimes you get money back too soon, it. and it creates sickness. You're going to get exactly what you need. But, Go along for the ride. And it's not just about just not drinking or, or, or using no. drugs. No. This is a lifestyle. No. This is a lifestyle. Assuming change. recovery. It's, it's, a, it's, yeah. a, it's a way of living. Yep. You know, on a much smaller scale, I mean, in, in this last time, because I relapsed after a long-term sobriety, and I had to start over, because... 
you know, when, when it ended for me, it ended with a host of felonies. I went to bed with zero and woke up with nine the next day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that kind of changes things. I was in finance too. And I have a similar story, nowhere near the scale with not as big of a deal, but even that and come, coming to getting sober, I got into the advertising world and I got a job and it was And you also job. ran, uh, illegal, illegal card, card games. games. Yeah. Wonderful yeah. games. Yeah. Dude. I, gotta be honest. I, I visited those games. You ran great illegal <laughs> card games. <I'd laughs> you know, there's a skill to it, I guess, but you know, I'm, I'm on this job. I'm working in New York city for the first time in my life and I'm selling advertising and I have a, a decent job, but I'm, it's just paying the bills. It's paying the bills. I'm covering my halfway house. I'm living in a half house. That's what it took for me to get sober. And I got another job and I fought for the interview and I had four interviews and it's, it's a, it's kind of a funny story. So they offered me the job. And this is where I love the fact that I had good men in my life and good people and good and good guidance at this point in time, because I get the, the offer and in the offer letter, it says, you know, we're going to pay you X and it's all, this is your offer of employment and it's pending a, a, a drug test check easy. I've been sober about 90 a days A test now. you can pass. A test I can pass. Mm-hmm. I'm good to go there. Nice. And a background check. Oh, I'm like, that's mother <laughs> That's going to be a problem. Because I'm on <laughs> felony probation, They I, and I pled guilty to three felonies, two second degree, and they're pretty serious charge. You know, like, it's, felonies come up. Like, they're, they're yeah, serious. Not I'm good. Like, oh my God, what do I do? So I'm going, you know, one of the things about relapses, I think it starts you completely over again. And I was just as insane as I was prior to ever getting sober, even a couple months being separated from the drug. So my first thought is, well, it, I'm working for someone advertising for a newspaper. They're probably not going to do a background check. You know, those things have to be expensive. Maybe I'll just lie about it. And the other thing is I'm looking at, I'm like, and it's also a lateral move. They're going to give me the same money, you know, and I, I, they got to give me more. Else I'm just going to stay where I'm at. You know, like this doesn't make any sense opportunity. I get it, whatever. I'm like, what do I do, man? So I, I call my sponsor. I'm like, what do I do? Like, what do I do in this situation? Uh, they're going to do a background check. Do I, do I tell them the truth and, or, or do I lie and, and th- roll the dice that three weeks in this background check's going to come back and they're going to fire me. And also they're not giving me the money. He's like, dude, tell them the truth. On every what front. a what a crazy idea to me just become completely crazy. honest with them across the board. So I call the <laughs> HR guy, and it's it's funny, and I'm I'm in like a uh, like a, I don't even know like one of those rest area like uh, what do they call it like in the city? You know they're all around. There's like the the building will be open, and there's people milling around. They might have food yeah, places. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, like a like, like a, a community, court, like oh, a like food court. Right, right. Yeah. So I make the call, and I'm like I'm I'm having the same thing. I'm I'm petrified because. You know, he's like, so it's this guy, Andre. He's like, so how did it look? He's, I was like, yeah, it looked good. There's just a couple things I wanted to address. And I'm, I'm like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I prayed. I did. I took all the action. I'm like, he's like, well, what's, you know, what is it? What, what's up? And I said, well, the first thing is like, you know, I know it's about opportunity, but it's, it would be a lateral move. I really was, you know, looking and it wasn't even that much money. I was like, I'm making 50 now. That's what you're offering me. And I know there's a, a much greater thing for commission and so on and so forth. But really I was looking to be in the neighborhood of like at least 60. And then, you know, I got a, a, on a, or else it's a ladder move. He's like, okay, let me talk to them and I'll get back to you. What was the other thing? I was like, um, the background check. I'm like, I actually have uh, a few felonies. He's <laughs> like, few. he goes, what? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I was running poker games. You know, it was like a thing. Somebody had drugs. You know, I, I I was slightly dishonest. I minimized a little because one of the, right, right. I didn't want to say I was. There was possession. somebody else's drugs. You didn't tell them that you were arrested for heroin possession heroin twice cocaine. in 24 hours. I, I didn't want to get into the whole story. jail two times in yeah, 24 in, hours. Within a four hour period. <laughs> I didn't want to tell him that part of the story, but I kind of uh, yeah. like, I generalized it. And he's like, so tell me these card games, like, did you provide food for them? And he starts asking these questions that I thought were odd. I'm yeah. like, do you play cards? He's like, ha, 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 no, but it's just interesting. So it ends, and he's like, all right, let me get back to you. And 10 minutes later, he calls back. He's like, are there any other charges? I said, <laughs> I said no, that's basically it. Man. I gave it. The, he's all right, well, we'll give you 55. We'll meet in the middle, and we're okay as long as those are the I'll tell you charges. now, they would have given you 60 if it wasn't for the felonies. So it cost you the extra five. five I'm grand. just saying. And it turned out, and so th- this goes on further. There's, there's more to this story. So I take the job, I start, and again, I'm— um, crazy and I want everything that I had back and more and I was making a lot of money and I want my cars back and I want all this stuff because I'm doing the same thing that everybody else does in early recovery which is it's got to be fixed now mm. and I'm, I'm having a hard time humbling myself barely able to afford cigarettes after paying rent and mortgage yeah. and stuff and I'm in this job and I'm looking around and I'm like you know this is this is not I'm selling $200 like 
quarter page ads in a newspaper, I'm never going to make any money here. So now I'm out and I'm looking already. I've been, I'm in there two weeks and I'm still putting resumes out and I'm talking to people and I go on an interview and again, I'm going crazy because I'm convinced that this is going to be, you know, and I'm freaking out though. Like it's the kind of thing where I'm, you know, I have a, a, a mind that's the obsession is this is not going to be good enough. And I'm not really, I call my sponsor. I'm like, dude, I'm just going on another interview. He's like, hold on a second, Mark. What the fuck are you doing? He's like, you've been there for three weeks. How, how you don't know anything about what any of the plans are for any of this stuff. Why don't you just relax and stop looking like you just, you just got there. I was like. This guy, man, like, what the fuck? Like, why? Again, my, my typical yeah. thing, like, all right, but you know what? It relieved the, the moment. I said, let me just give it a shot. And four months later, I had my first big month in that job. And six months later, I mean, it, I never had a bad month again. And I started, made more and more and more to the point where I made more money doing that job than I've ever made in my entire life, yeah. which is, you know, and for me, it was a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, it was all because I just took, again, direction from somebody else and, again, continued to concentrate on this stuff, on yeah. recovery. That's it. And it just, it blew up. When I left to come here, they were fucking pissed. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, you're doing what for what? Yeah. yeah. And I was like, yeah, man, it's just, it's time. It's time to make a move. But it's still, and, and it's again, an that's another thing. See, that comes with, but story. that comes with some maturity too in recovery where, and it's interesting because money is not, cannot be, if money is your primary guiding force, it's not that it won't end well, but it's just not as like you left a job where you came somewhere else to make less money. But to do something that you have a passion for, which is kind of cool, too. You know what I mean? And then who knows where that goes once you go, you know what I mean? Once you make that switch. But you actually, like now, you love coming to work every day, right? I've like, never you, once thought, like, oh, I got to go to work today. You know, <laughs> never. It's never been that way. See, that's so. a career instead of a job. Yeah. Right? And that's the thing. Can I earn a living? I mean, yeah, I can earn a living. But do I love what I do? Like, you know what I mean? Now, what a blessing that is in life. And not everybody gets that. Some people, they have a job. Yeah, Some people have a easy. career. But in the beginning, in the early, early, early sobriety, first job, it's going to be a job. Yeah, and there's it's nothing going wrong. That's, it should probably a be guy, a job. Absolutely. I have a guy now that I'm working with, Sponsee, and I'm like, dude, I know you hate your job. You know, but I'm, I'm telling you, you have to continue to have faith. Finish your fucking four-step. Yeah, right? yeah. It's been months. <laughs> you're, you're, you're dragging your feet, and you're yeah. miserable at your job. Like, there's a, there's a world, a life waiting for you that you're still... You're not going to ever see until you kind of get through and have some awakenings and see things from a different angle. The most important thing to get out of any of this stuff when you tell these kinds of stories is it came to it came to me when I wasn't looking to be successful. I wasn't looking for money. I wasn't looking for any of that. I was looking to do the next right thing, and I was keeping myself open to whatever was going to pop up, and I didn't. I would have been comfortable making just enough where I could pay my bills and I could have money for cigarettes because I still smoked Marlboro Reds back then. Yeah, and, and I was in the just just if I could buy some cigarettes and if I could just have enough money just to kind of get by, you know, I'm happy because I'm not dying anymore. You know what I mean? Like I'm living right and I'm living honest and I'm actually developing real friendships and my family are starting to trust me again. There's those little things that just make you feel good. The other stuff will come in time if you do the next right thing and if you focus on what's important. And if important. it's in your plan, but the beautiful thing about recovery is we can be happy with what we have in any given moment. Yeah, there you, you know? go. Like, that's real. That's You know you're in a good spot when it's you're fine with it. But the yeah. truth is... Life's going to be life. But the truth is trouble. that over time, beyond your wildest dreams is no bullshit. Oh, yeah. It's, it's no always, bullshit. It's no and bullshit. And I can go and over... I can just pick... 20 people randomly that I've worked with Me over too. the last 20 years. And I could just pick 20 random names out of my phone of people I've worked with the last 20 years. And I guarantee you, every single one of them has some career that is beyond anything they would have imagined for themselves. In, 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 I mean, I literally could go through and just pick random names. And I guarantee you, because I know I still keep in touch with everybody. I don't know of any cases of people who've done this recovery program that they're not be that we're not taken way beyond where they were when they came in. Another it's cliche thing, incredible. right? If if I, if I would have we sell ourselves short. If I if I could have had everything I wanted yeah. when I first got sober, yeah. I would have sold myself way, way short. short. Absolutely, I have a life, yeah. ordinary life beyond my wildest dreams. You no know, doubt, I'm not rich, but now I'm good because it's, you know I'll choose to a little subtopic and then we can we can wrap it up. And it is a cool one. And it's something like food for thought stuff. And it, it all goes into when you're early recovery, the job and the and the girl, and we'll talk about that next time and the friends. 
people that you hang out with. This is one of those things where, you know, the topic would be hanging out with friends who still drink and use, hanging out with the old friends. It's an interesting thing when you come in and you're getting sober. And one of the big fellowship things that they tell you in every fellowship is people, places, and things, mm-hmm. right? But they also tell you, interestingly enough, and this is where some of the, the bullshit that I could never kind of understand gets along, they also tell you don't make any ch- major changes in the first year. Other than not hanging out with anybody I hung out with, places, things, everything, don't change it. Like, you know, change a job, change everything you do, change the way you think, don't hang out with anybody anymore. But no major changes. Those are all major changes. So, you know, it is kind of— Stick with the winners, but don't judge. Yeah, there there you go. Stick with the winners, but don't take people's inventory. It's about how do you do that? So there are major changes that go on in early recovery. The whole thing is one major-ass change. I think they just mean don't make any big decisions that don't don't need to be—yeah, yeah. Big decisions that don't need to be made right away. But people, places, and things are something that does need to happen right away. And, you know, some of the literature and some of the, you know, when you hear advice from people in the thing and they say don't— you know, don't go around. If you go into the barber shop often enough, you're going to come out with a haircut, right? You go into the lion's den, at some point you're going to get bit. They use all these different analogies to describe the danger. And they say that, you know, what's your motive in going to a place, stopping by the pool hall where you used to play pool where everyone has the drinks, and you go in and you saddle up and you sit in one of the chairs at the table and order a club soda with lime. And you're there, and they describe that as stealing some vicarious pleasure from the atmosphere of the place. Meaning, what are you doing there? Like, why are you going to go to that that to that spot yeah and 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 we justify it with ourselves going to a pool hall well i'm going to play pool going to the bar that i used to play competitive darts in in a competitive dart league well i'm going to play darts like i want to see you know and i want to see the guys they're still my friends and i you know what i mean and i want to see those guys and show them how good i'm doing i want them to see oh i heard you're sober that's great oh let me get you a water let me get you a sub and now i'm hanging out and everybody else is doing what we do with impunity they're drinking and having fun i don't see any of the horror show i don't see what happens some of them have. Yeah, of the course same they do. Show. But you don't see that in the bar right. at the time. All you see at the time is music and fun and the bead falling off the cold glass of sure. beer, that bead of water. It feels like yeah, it's like a Budweiser commercial, and you're like, so oh, this one is guy great. geeked out a little bit. Yeah, and he's got the little white things, but you know he's having fun in his own little insane, sick way the moment. Um, for the moment. But, you know, what happens after? What goes on? Where does that lead? And I know where it leads, but when you're in those kinds of places, do we have any right to go, you know, people, places, things, people, places, and things, what, you know, how do we put ourselves into that? And hanging out with people that we used to hang out with oftentimes is a tremendous mistake and it can be very, very dangerous. Did you have any experiences with that early on? I'm trying to think early experiences, see different, a little bit different experience for me is that like, by the time I ended up in recovery, even in my early twenties, my friends had all been gone, lone wolf type of thing. You know, I went a path that most of those guys didn't go. Um, I guess a couple times early on, but I'd been, I'd done some work in here. And, and one of the things I had to hear in, in recovery, um, from 12 step fellowships was that it wasn't about avoiding that stuff. It was some of those later promises after having had an experience with the stuff that I could go anywhere and do anything that a, that a person can do. As long as I had a certain simple attitude, my motives were right. And I wasn't going to steer vicarious pleasures in the beginning. I mean, I lived in a halfway house for six months. We didn't go to bars. You know what I mean? It was just against the rules, and we didn't do it. We had a lot of fun. Was I around people? My whole family drinks. My, my, my girlfriend, I've never had anybody that was in recovery that I've dated. My girlfriend drank, um, and it, it had to be okay. Because me getting sober doesn't mean you can't do something that's sure. not, not bad for you. Um, but in the beginning, I mean, he, even if I had to do a 12-step call or I had to bring someone in detox, because those people are high, and they might be on the my absolute drug of choice, right? Like, I don't— it's easy to avoid heroin addicts when you're when you're trying to get clean from heroin. I mean, if you're hanging out with people yeah. that are an active crack smoking addiction, I mean, you're really setting yourself up for failure. But it doesn't mean I have to. This isn't about hiding out in the church basement. The deal is that I have to meet life and everything that comes with it successfully. And so, I mean, in the beginning, it's of course people, places, and things. There were a couple people still floating around out there. I had lost the desire hanging out with those people, though. Why would I want to hang out with the people that are doing the things that I did? And yet, I and went, yet, but but so many of them do. 
so many people come into early recover and they want to go by the old neighborhood. They want to go by and see yeah. the old. I mean, that's a reality. You were lucky if you lost complete desire to go by and see everybody and you were just oh, happy I, to disassociate so from them. I was also separated. And it was only by a couple different counties in northern New Jersey here, but I moved from Morris to Bergen. Which is helpful, too. So a geographical in that sense in that actually sense, played a positive role. In a lot of ways. And I, but I was involved. And, but then I went back. It was probably a year in. And there was a place called Johnny's Tavern in Booton, which is a pretty famous bar. And, and they had like a golf outing. And so I went, but I was sober at the time. I went and I played golf with my uncle. And we went back to the bar for a little while afterwards. But I was, you know, really in this stuff. Right. I was completely Recovered. safe. Sure. We went and ate and I went home. Yeah. You know, I had no desire to drink in, yeah. of any way. It had been long since been removed. Which is a totally different thing than yeah. when you're in early recovery before yeah. you've had an experience, before you've I mean, been placed a- in that position of safety where it can be a little dicey to put yourself in that circumstance. And that goes across the board. You know, like people like, oh, well, if you're in you know, recovery, then you shouldn't have a problem going to a wedding of your family. Not necessarily. If you're just coming first time, you're it's just in your fourth step, stuff, use a little right? common sense. I tell all my sponsors, like, no, you might be uncomfortable going to this wedding. Have a plan. You know, when you go to the wedding, you're in the middle of your fourth step, first time trying to get sober. I want you to call me at least once while you're at the wedding today because you yeah. seem uncomfortable and nervous. And I want you to have an exit plan. Who's Lean. taking you there? Make sure you, I'll come pick your ass up myself. You right. call me, I'll be there in 15 minutes, dude. And I'll come pick you up and we'll go hit a meeting and then leave the wedding. I mean, that's it. The idea, I think, for all of this is in the beginning, lean heavily on your sponsor and your network. Yeah, and no take, doubt. No you question. Know, you know, don't think that I'm, I'm going to be okay going here because you don't know. This thing is the type of thing where before you're at a certain point, it'll come out of nowhere. Sure. You might be okay and think and go in with the proper motive. And then it's like, well, I'll just have one. You know, hit you suddenly. <laughs> I'll tell the story sometimes. I could even, I'll end my my bit with the whole people, places, and things, uh, people, places, and things bit. But my first time I came, this, I'm not a first time winner because the first time I came in and tried to get to a fellowship and tried to get sober, I told you the guys, the Wall Street guys introduced me to this. That was earlier, earlier on. It was only later on that I actually came in and actually got sober. And, you know, I am doing what some of them describe. I'm white knuckling it, right? I'm thinking about it all the time, but I'm not doing acting on it. Yeah. I want to drink. Let me go to a meeting and that kind of stuff. And it was just a constant back and forth. But people, places, and things. And it is important. And so for me, I ignored that because dart season was starting. And I can't I can't very well disappoint the guys on the team in the bar, you know what I mean, at Legends Pub. They need me. You know, I'm one of the good dart players, and I, I, I can't not go. So I went to Legends Pub, and I joined up the dart season, and I'm sober, right? Not really, but, you know, I'm abstinent. I'm going into the fellowship, and I'm going to meetings. And uh, so I show up for the dart season and I can't comfortably be in a bar and not drink. And that's where I was at back then. And I'm sitting in there and they're all drinking and I see the beers and I love Budweiser and I love Jack Daniels as a chaser. And I, I want to drink. I want a rock glass full of Jack and I want to drink Buds all night and I want to play darts, but I'm not gonna because I know where it leads me and the cocaine. And I just, I know if I drink, I'm going to get high on Coke. And I know if I do Coke, I'm going to, I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But now I go in and I'm playing darts and I realize I can't be in here, but I'm not going to not be in here. I'm not sober enough to make a decision to say, you know what? This isn't for me. I'm too uncomfortable. I got no business here. So I came up with my own little sober plan. And so what I did, this is insane. And I did this for maybe, I don't know, a month of dart season. And then eventually I just started drinking. I'll tell you the end of the story. I started drinking again and getting high again. But for about a month, I would go to my dart league and I would go in and I would always ask them to put me as the first player when the, when the match starts at night, because I know what time it starts. And I'd come two minutes before start. I'd warm up a little bit and then I'd play the first game. When my game was over, I'd look on the schedule, and I'm up like in about probably 25 minutes-ish, I know, around there, and I would leave the bar, and I would jog. I ran. I would run down Victory Boulevard to Jewett, make a right on Jewett, go up Chandler, go make a right on Crow, and I would go back down Victory Boulevard, and I would just do a box, a big rectangle up around my local neighborhood in Staten Island. I was in good shape back then, and I'm just running. And I would go run for 15 minutes, and I'd say, okay, it's been about 18 minutes, and I'd go to the bar door, and I'd open it up, and I'd go, am I up? And they would be like, 10 more minutes! And I'm like, all right! And I would go, and I'd just run again. And that's what I did for, for four weeks of darts. I literally couldn't be in that bar. So my my solution was not to stop playing darts. My solution was to jog, and that I just wouldn't be there for the, for the in the middle. And I would just show up to play darts because I didn't want to give that up. And it worked for four weeks. Yeah. And then eventually I was going to go out and start running. And I'm like, this is stupid. I don't need to go out and run. 
And before before you know it, I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna have one beer. I'm not gonna. I'm not doing the, any of the bullshit again. I'm not gonna have the jack. I'm not gonna have any. I'm just gonna have a beer, yeah. and I'm gonna be chill, and I'm not gonna let it get out of hand again. And you know what happened? I mean, and this is insane. the best plan that I could come up your with. Your best, best thinking, yeah. On our own, which again goes to the point of yep. lean heavily on others, because I have a lot of good ideas still today. Yeah. You know, almost eight years back with 19 years of experience and recovery, and you have them too. Sure. I need other people sometimes. Yeah. A lot of times. Things get a lot better. Thinking gets a lot clearer. But there's a lot of decisions I'm still capable of making some poor ones. Sure. And it doesn't just end with relapse. There's a lot more than yeah, just. I may be making one of those up. decisions on Saturday. All right. So anyway, <laughs> um, so let's. Um, <laughs> it's happening again. So. Um, all right, so we'll wrap it up um, there. And again, we could talk about all this stuff in 80 million different ways and forever. I'm glad we didn't get into the dating because we'll do a full thing on yeah, dating. You can and, easily and do it. We're going to do a thing next. In the next podcast, we'll do if we have one in between when we do the patient brokering and all the scumbags in this field. Um, before we do that, if we do dating, we're not just going to do dating in early recovery. We're going to do dating in early recovery, and we're going to do backslash dating in recovery for people who've got some time because dating in recovery is a very interesting thing. And, you know, if you talk to, like, if you talk to Chitty, who's the clinical director in this joint, um, from the treatment perspective, he'll tell you the main two things that people go out and relapse on are surgeries and girls or boys, depending. Surgeries? Surgeries, yeah. yeah, um, uh, Either dental or medical procedures where you get painkillers. We lose more people to that than almost anything. It's that and and, uh, relationships. relationships. Those are the two things that kill more people like us than anything else. Um, Money's got to be up there, too. No, you've... not not for cause of not not causal for immediate relapse. I'm not saying it doesn't have effect of life and maybe break down. So you give into one of those other you know one of those other things. Okay. But typically speaking, those are the two biggest. Everything can have an effect on you, but those are the two biggest reasons for going back out and relapsing. So having a full podcast on relationships, dating, and early recovery or dating and recovery is definitely relevant. And I have some crazy ass stories that I can tell along those lines, which are kind of cool. So we'll do that. Um, and so remember, if you want to subscribe to the podcast, uh, we're available on major streaming platforms, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And other than that, stay the path. Stay the path. <laughs>